Happy Easter, everyone. It's great to be with you. We are going through a series uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and we have come now to the time of his resurrection and the account that Luke gives us of Jesus' resurrection after three days. And this is our Gospel reading from Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel writers all give us an account of the resurrection, but they each tell us about the last week and the last days in a little bit of a different way, not contradictory, but slightly different perspectives. They emphasize different things. And Luke is the only one that tells us here of the two men or the two angels that appear to the women who frighten the women. In fact, more than that, they were terrified. And they were asked by these angels, why are you seeking the living among the dead? You see, they've stacked their hope in something that has let them down. They've staked their hope and they've hitched their wagon to Jesus and he went and got himself killed, just like hundreds of others of would-be messiahs. And they go to the grave out of respect. They go to the grave because Jesus is a friend, and this is what you do. You go and preserve the body. But they don't expect him to be missing. They don't expect him to have risen again. They have no expectation that they'll find anything there except a rotting, dead corpse. They've given their life to something, and it's brought death instead. How many of us have had the same sort of experience, something that we've pursued, something that we've staked our hopes on, something that we thought was going to bring us life has actually done the very opposite. We've pursued something that looked to us like life, and it instead has sucked the life out of us. Or we've been able to possess that thing that we pursued, something that looked like life, and once we got it, it brought us closer to spiritual and emotional, maybe even physical death. And so shouldn't we ask ourselves this question, why do we seek the living among the dead? When we do this, when we seek the living among the dead, 
When we have presumptions like these women, we are missing two things. We're missing the miracle of the resurrection. We're missing the meaning of the resurrection. And that's what we're going to look at this passage through those two lenses, the miracle and the meaning of the resurrection. But before we do so, let's pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for Easter morning. We thank you for the hope that we can have in your resurrection. Father, it's doubtful that there's anyone in this room that hasn't heard the basic contours of this story before, that hasn't heard the outline. Maybe some of us have heard it dozens or hundreds of times, and we don't just need a recital of the facts, but we need you to meet us in our imagination. Meet us in this story. Holy Spirit, come, and would you illuminate for us not just the facts of what happened, but why they happened, why it matters, and why it matters to us as individuals. Father, would you give us hope as we revisit this story, as we revisit you coming out of the grave, would we imagine our own coming out of the grave? Lord, we pray that you would be with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that keeps these women seeking the living among the dead is that they seem to filter out or they miss the miracle of the resurrection. These women were told by Jesus it was going to happen. And the male disciples who were gathered somewhere else were told that this was going to happen, and yet it seems to come as a complete surprise to them. And it certainly upends their hope. They filter out the possibility of the miracle. They're treating him as a rabbi, as just another religious teacher. He's a good friend. He's a guru who has now gone to his tragic death. And what do the angels tell them? He is risen. He is not here. And what these angels are telling these women and what they're telling us is he's not like every other religious leader. He's not like every other prophet. He's not like every other claimed to be Messiah who's died a tragic death. And if you treat him like this, you'll never find him. If you treat him like this, if you filter out the miracle, the possibility of the resurrection, you'll never know him. Conventional wisdom in our day is that Jesus was very inspiring. He was a nice guy. He said a lot of wonderful things. We should emulate his conviction. We should care for those who are less fortunate. But a physical, bodily resurrection? Come on. We've moved beyond that in our day. We've moved beyond the miraculous, especially something like this. We've moved beyond the need to kind of put our whole faith system on one miraculous event like this. Come on, that's how primitive people wrestled with his death. I'm sure they wanted to see Jesus. I'm sure that maybe they felt like they saw Jesus because in those days, everyone believed in the possibilities of resurrection. They believed in these sorts of things. So come on, it was easy for them to believe. But we've moved beyond that. We're modern, sophisticated people. Now, there are no doubt some hurdles that we have to get over in believing the resurrection. But having this sort of mindset, filtering out the possibility of the miraculous resurrection has a bit of chronological arrogance to it. It has also a bit of chronological ignorance because it wasn't easy for them to believe. These women were highly dubious. 
What does the text say while they were wondering about this? They go to the tomb. There's no body. The stone has been rolled away. And it says they wonder. But that's far too passive. It says instead, it probably should say they were perplexed. They were entirely at a loss as to how this could have possibly happened. And then they go tell the male disciples what they saw. But they did not believe the women, verse 11, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. It's a medical term that's describing the delirious talk of someone who is very, very sick, perhaps on the edge of death. That's what it means. It's a medical term. These people are speaking nonsense. The disciples aren't looking for any reversal of this tragic situation. They're not expecting an immediate resurrection from Jesus. Their dreams about Jesus being the Messiah have been absolutely shattered. And now these hysterical women are coming in and trying to challenge reality. They're speaking nonsense. Believing the resurrection was just as difficult for them, these ancient people, as it is for us modern people. Jesus, their beloved leader, had been killed. He'd go down as one more martyr. Maybe with some pretty innovative things to say, some pretty interesting things but he was a very dead prophet. They were looking for the living among the dead because they had filtered out the possibility of a miraculous resurrection that would change everything. A.N. Wilson is a British intellectual. He's a, a biographer. He writes in newspapers and he was born in a Christian church, as most people were in the 1950s in England, but he gave up any affiliation with the faith in his 30s. And he says, For much of my life, I too have been one of those who did not believe. It was in my young manhood that I began to wonder how much of the Easter story I accepted. And in my 30s, I lost any religious belief whatsoever. Like many people who lost faith, I felt anger with myself for having been conned by such a story. I began to rail against Christianity and wrote a book entitled Jesus, which endeavored to establish that he had been no more than a messianic prophet who had well and truly failed and died. Why did I, along with so many others, become so dismissive of Christianity? Like most educated people in Britain and Northern Europe, he was born in 1950, I've grown up in a culture that is overwhelmingly secular and anti-religious. The universities, broadcasters, and media generally are not merely non-religious, they are positively anti. To my shame, I believe it was this that made me lose faith and my heart and heart in my youth. It felt so uncool to be religious. What about us? Shouldn't we at least entertain the possibility that because we swim in this culture of skepticism, because outside of these doors, things are not simply non-religious, but oftentimes very anti-religious, at least anti-Christianity, anti the possibility that a miraculous resurrection could occur. And therefore, we filter out the miracle of the, of the resurrection, not because we've done the heavy lifting of investigating the claims for ourselves, but just simply because we let others do our thinking for us. We go along with the crowd. We miss the resurrection because though we live in a supposedly very open-minded age, 
we have a very narrow filter of what is possible. And this can't possibly be true because other people say it can't be true. You may recall Anne Rice. She had a very public confession of Christianity back in the mid-2000s, and she has since not, not denied Christianity, but she has left the church. She has a very colorful history with regards to Christianity. But she began to write a series of historical novels about Jesus, and so she wanted to go to the firsthand accounts and figure it out for herself and see, did these things hold weight? And she went into this investigation presuming that she would find the testimony very unreliable, that the gospel accounts would be completely contradictory, and she could have great liberty to kind of make things up as she went along. But instead, she came across a number of sources, one of which was Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's a fairly thick book, but he's a New Testament professor also in Britain. And she read this book and began to presume exactly the opposite, that maybe these gospel writers had it right. Maybe the conventional wisdom was wrong. Maybe, as she sought out to prove the gospel accounts as a fabrication, that that was much more problematic than just believing that they had got their facts right, that the history was actually right, that the eyewitnesses were trustworthy, and that these accounts had been written within the lifetime of those who could very easily disprove and say, I was there, this is not the way it happened. And yet instead, quite the contrary, the church explodes through the first few hundreds of the church's existence after the resurrection. Proving the gospel accounts seemed to her, seemed to many, to be much, proving them to be a fabrication seemed to be much more problematic than taking them at what they said. A.N. Wilson continues, the Easter story is relentlessly disconcerting, and in a way, it is the antithesis to the Christmas story. No matter how much you try and water down its particulars, Easter retains some of the shock it had for those who first participated in the events during the first century. The resurrection, the joyful end of the Easter story, resists domestication as it resists banalization. Unlike Christmas, it also resists a noncommittal response. Even agnostics and atheists who don't accept Christ's divinity can accept the general outlines of the Christmas story with little danger to their worldview. But Easter demands a response. Easter demands a yes or no. There is no whatever. Maybe we don't believe because we live in a culture of skepticism that says it can't be true, but maybe our skepticism is a bit more personal. If the resurrection is true, we lose control of our lives. If the resurrection is true, we have to reinterpret our past and present and future. We have to see all of that through a new lens, a new filter. And so it means that we have to give up our throne. We have to give up the center of our lives if the resurrection is true. And so maybe our skepticism isn't just built on the lack of evidence the perceived lack of evidence, but, or the fact that we swim in a culture of skepticism, but it's because we don't want to give up control. The resurrection, Jesus claims they can have ultimate value. They can have no value, but certainly not 
some value. We can't leave here this morning and say, those are some nice ideas and I'm going to try and import them as best I can into my life. That's some value. And that's not what the resurrection allows us to do. It says, no value or ultimate value. If it isn't true, if it isn't entirely true, then don't bother listening to anything else I have to say this morning. We should pack it up and go home. But if it is true, there's nothing more important than we could be doing right now. There's nothing more important to concern our lives with. There's nothing more important that we could build our lives on. We look for the living among the dead because we filter out the possibility of the miracle of the resurrection. But we also need to wrestle with the meaning of the resurrection. So what? It happened. What does it mean? And you see, the angels don't just correct the women's facts. He's not here. He's risen. But they correct their interpretation of the facts, their interpretation of what they had heard from Jesus. You misunderstood the resurrection because you didn't understand that he must die. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. They heard his words differently. They drew them, they listened to them through a new filter. We've developed new technology so that we can go back and look at our founding documents as Americans. We see the, the documents that were written 200 and so years ago by the founding fathers, and we see that some of these documents aren't just there, but they're works in progress, because now with uh, lasers and so forth, you can look underneath the words on the page. And you can see, such as with the Declaration of Independence, that Thomas Jefferson wrote a rough draft in which he changed some very vital words. He had originally written the phrase, our fellow subjects, but he changed it to our fellow citizens. You see, at some point, something he encountered made him think of his fellow citizens, himself, humanity, differently. He had an epiphany. He had a new filter by which he saw people. And instead of being subjects to the king, his neighbors, himself, his nation now, were Americans. They were fellow citizens. And you can see that he changed that. He saw something differently. He heard something that changed the way that he thought about who he was and about what he had been told. The women had heard all of what Jesus had said. This is what's coming but they had to hear it differently. They knew that he had died, but not that he had to die. Not that he had to die. The early disciples had heard Jesus say on many occasions that the Son of Man would die, would have to die. They had the facts, but they needed an interpretive lens. They needed the resurrection. They needed Jesus to actually come back for those things to make sense. For in the present situation, they were horrific. They were sad. They put an end to every hope that they had. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, they had hope anew. They had a new beginning. The miracle of the resurrection is hard to believe, but the meaning is hard to accept. 
The meaning is, miracle is hard to believe, but the meaning is hard to accept because what we have to accept, what we have to say is that my issues, my problems, my disconnect with God, my rebellion against Him is so deep, my sin is so ugly that I didn't need just an example. I didn't need merely a good teacher. I didn't need a guru. I needed a Savior. The miracle is hard to believe, but the meaning is hard to accept because what we have to do, say in accepting it is that I needed a Savior and that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can redeem me. This is insulting. It's insulting that we would have to say that, that we would have to say that my problems and issues run so deep that God had to send His own Son to redeem me. It didn't just take a new set of facts, a new pathway, ten steps to a better life. It took the death of the Son of God and His resurrection. It shatters our self-importance. It shatters and dethrones us. But notice the change in the participants. The women walk to the tomb as if they're attending a funeral. Peter runs back. They walk to the funeral, but then they can't wait to go tell the disciples what had happened. They have this new lens by which to see life. Jesus, in fact, has actually risen out of the grave. It's no longer a funeral. Their heads are no longer hung low. They have news to tell. Suddenly, Jesus' death isn't a disappointing end, but it's a a beautiful beginning. Now they had news to tell. Jesus had to die for me, for us. What does this mean? Can we get practical for just a moment on the meaning of the resurrection? Because when this fact gets down into our soul, when we begin to truly understand what it means for me, a couple of things happen. One is that you can begin to own up to your own humanity. You can begin to own up to your own limitations. You can begin to confess your sin. You can begin to own up to your shortcomings. And when people criticize you, you say, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) When someone comes to you with a complaint, you can say, yes, and I've got a whole lot more I could tell you about. You're no longer threatened by people's criticisms because you're willing and able now to own up to your own shortcomings. You know them before the person comes and tells you about them. You don't know the half of it. It took Jesus, the Son of God, to die in my place to redeem me. That was what it took to cover my sin. But you don't stay there. You don't wallow in your sin. You don't wallow in your unfitness. You don't self-flagellate because through Jesus, not only are you a sinner, but you are crowned with glory and honor and God delights with you, in you and dances over you and you will live with Him as a co-heir of Jesus forever. The resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection is an antidote to the deserving mentality where we expect others to orbit around us because we are so special. We can, for the first time, begin to forget ourselves and look at others' needs, just as Jesus has done for us. But it's also the antidote to this timid self-doubt, self-loathing, 
perhaps, where we let other people walk all over us because we think we deserve it. It's an antidote to both of those things. What else happens? Not only did Jesus die for you, not only did Jesus die to pay the penalty of your sin, but he was raised for you, and now you have a new future. Why is it so hard to face disability? Why is it so hard to face death? Why is it so hard to face suffering and setbacks? Why is it so hard to be content with what we have? Why do we continue chasing the next promotion, the next advancement, the next relationship in, as a means to heal ourselves, as a means to find affirmation and find significance? Why is it so hard to stop seeking the living among the things that we know are not going to provide life and sometimes provide death? Isn't it partially because we think this body is all I have? Isn't it possibly because we think this money is all I have? This life is all I have. The now is all I have, and I have to grab everything I can possibly get because this life is all there is. But if Jesus is risen, your future is so much more beautiful and certain than that. If Jesus is risen, not only have your sins and debts been paid for fully and finally and forever, but you have enormous hope, not simply for a new heart, a new spirit, but new lives a new body, and one day a new world. That's what the resurrection is speaking to. It's not just a miracle, but it has meaning. Jesus didn't just come out of the tomb, but he came out of the tomb for you. The meaning is that the God of Good Friday and the God of Easter is a God of grace. He's a God of new beginnings. He's a God of a new future. He's a God who lays down his life for you. The people who hear this, the people who let that drift into their soul, don't walk around life like it's a funeral, but they run like children. They dance and sing like children. Not all the time. Life is still hard. Things terrible happen, but you have a reason to rethink those things. You have a filter by which those things have to pass through, and that is Jesus has died and has risen again for me, and I will live with him forever. In May of 2009, at the commencement um, weekend at Azusa Pacific University, there was a special gathering, not the main commencement, but a special gathering of alumni and friends of the university and staff and a few current students. And the president brought out a few students, three of them, who were graduating that year, and he told the crowd that these, two stu- these three students were going to serve the poorest of the poor in India for two years after they graduated. These three students were brought on stage thinking they were just going to be commissioned, maybe prayed for, and sent out with their blessing. But then something happened, something unexpected. The president told them, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, who is so moved by what you're setting out to do that they have given a gift to this university in your name. Now that's quite an honor, and the three students were very moved. Someone has given a gift in their honor because of what they're about to set out to do. 
But then he said, it wasn't just in your honor, but it was on your behalf. And the president turned to the first student and said, you have a student loan debt of $105,000, and that debt has been forgiven. And the kid, of course, immediately breaks into tears. He turns to the next student and said, you have a student loan debt of $70,000, and that's erased. It's done away with. And then to the third, you're forgiven your debt of $130,000. They hadn't even gone yet. They hadn't done anything to deserve it other than just simply be willing. And this donor erased their debts completely and anonymously. All three students had no idea that this was coming. They were ambushed by grace. And the whole crowd was in tears. Don't you know like the women, that they ran to the phone to call their parents and say, you are never going to believe what just happened. Don't you know they had news to tell and they couldn't wait to tell it to someone? And don't you know the parents are probably like the men who said, well, wait, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see when the statement comes in. Then we'll believe it. They were probably dubious. But they ran to the phones to tell this good news. You see, the fact that Jesus had to die for you can be the most insulting thing imaginable, something that you will try to push away and ignore and deny because it can be so insulting. Or Jesus dying for you and rising again from the dead can be the most freeing, life-giving, delightful, crucial event in your life. Jesus was willing to be cut off for you. He was willing to lose his life, lose his status for you. He was willing to go to hell for you. He was willing to die for you. And then he rose again and said, Come and live with me. Please don't look any longer for the living among the dead. He's not there, he is risen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to wrestle with this passage. If we are here this morning and are quite dubious, quite skeptical that this is in fact true and that it has meaning for our lives, I pray that in some small way, Holy Spirit, would you step into our lives and into our story and let it not be insulting, but let it be in an unimaginable way invitation. Father, I pray that for those of us who have heard this story many times, that we would leave here with the conviction that you are for us and not against us, that you are a God of grace who sent his son to die in our place and then raised him from the dead to announce your victory, not only over our individual sin, but the sin of the world and death itself, and that you began to unwind all of the things about our world that are sad and untrue and are remaking them, and that one day we will have new bodies, we will have a new world to inhabit, and that Jesus is the down payment upon that. We pray that we would put our hope in that, that we would stake our lives in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.